0: This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age, edited by Colin Barker, Gareth Dale and Neil Davidson. This collection of essays looks at the political upheavals and urban revolts that have erupted during the neoliberal era, from Eastern Europe to Africa and Latin America. You can find Revolutionary Rehearsals at haymarketbooks.org, readers in the US and the UK Receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Over the last 20 years, hostility to Muslims has become one of the central themes in political discourse throughout Europe and North America. From Donald Trump to Marine Le Pen far-right politicians have made Islamophobia into a central plank of their campaigning platforms. At the same time, the US and its allies have engaged in a series of wars throughout North Africa and the Middle East. George W. Bush gave us a taste of the rhetoric that would become so prevalent after the 9-11 attacks. Bush referred to the war on terror he was planning to wage as a crusade. still exists. We haven't seen this kind of barbarism in a long period of time. No one could have conceivably imagined uh, suicide bombers burrowing into our society and then emerging all on the same day to fly their aircraft, fly U.S. aircraft, into buildings full of innocent people and show no remorse. And uh, we're, we're, this is a new kind of uh, a new kind of evil. And uh, we all we'll uh, we understand. And the American people are beginning to understand, now this, is, this, 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 this crusade, this war on terrorism, is going to take a while. Our guest today is Deepa Kumar. She's a professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University and the author of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. It's a book that explores the relationship between imperial militarism abroad and Islamophobic bigotry on the home front the second expanded edition of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire was published by Verso last year. This is the first part of a two-part interview. We'll be broadcasting the second part in two weeks' time. You argue in your book that we should understand Islamophobia as a form of racism rather than a form of religious bigotry or discrimination. Why is that distinction important in your view?
1: distinction is important because if you want to actually end Islamophobia, if you want to end anti-Muslim racism, you have to understand where it comes from, what its source is, and what the roots of this form of racism actually are. And so I try to push back against the more liberal understanding of Islamophobia as a kind of, you know, individual set of bad ideas in one's head or just a sort of historic misunderstanding of Islam and so forth. And now, of course, it's true that, you know, people do have bad ideas and, you know, there is discrimination and so forth. But the central argument in my book is that empire is what produces, sustains, and is fed by anti-Muslim racism. Now, that can seem a little bit abstract, so let me concretize this a little more. Now, if you think about how since 9-11, Muslims have been targeted by the national security apparatus, they are seen as a suspect population. This is why we have the kind of mass intrusive surveillance that has been developed. Of course, it has a longer history, surveillance and racial profiling of Muslims goes back in the United States, at least, goes back to the late 60s and the early 70s. But it was really bolstered in the post 9-11 moment. And the logic here is that Muslim communities produce terrorists and therefore the NYPD or the FBI or whatever needs to go in and watch these people right? So they go into schools, they go into kindergartens, they go into mosques and bookstores and all of these spaces. And to some, this is just smart security policy. But if you think about the logic of it, if you think about the fact that neo-Nazis and white supremacists are also responsible for political violence, just as, you know, the political violence of the perpetrators of 9-11, but you don't have the same corresponding systems of surveillance where you know white communities are infiltrated in order to gather information because you know white communities produce white supremacists so whether it's the FBI's model of radicalization or the NYPD's it's all based on the racialization of the muslim population um, and the assumption that they are prone to violence. And so the point I make really is that races are produced. They are produced at certain moments for certain goals tied to the political economy, right? The political economy of empire. And Barbara Fields and Karen Fields talk about this process of producing races, racialization, if you will, as race craft, right? It's a kind of... Uh, it's 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 a process of production. It doesn't just exist in, you know, in some sort of ethereal uh, fashion. And when we see it that way, we see that both Democrats and Republicans are responsible for this process of racialization because they both preside over empire. Now, the rhetoric is different. Um, The Democrats tend to use more liberal rhetoric, the Republicans, either conservative or reactionary rhetoric. But at the end of the day, anti-Muslim racism emerges from the bowels of empire and is important to reproduce empire. And I'll give one last example of liberal Islamophobia. Now, the term Islamophobia, by the way, became popular in the 1990s when a UK think tank known as the runnymede Trust published a report on the kind of discrimination that uh, Muslims faced in the uh, United Kingdom, their exclusion from certain spheres um, and so forth. And so that's been the term that's been used uh, since then to talk about this kind of stigma and the kind of prejudice uh, that uh, Muslims experience. And it is true that Muslims experience Prejudice that they are sometimes fired from jobs, that they experienced hate crimes, you know, whether it's outright murder. Right now we are seeing in Albuquerque, New Mexico, four Muslim men have been killed in recent months, one after another. This is all true. This is all happening. And these ways of understanding Islamophobia are not wrong, but they are not sufficient. They don't get to the roots of where this comes from and how, in the immediate context, it is the war on terror that has provided the framework from which to see Muslims as security threats. So one example is how people get confused when figures like Obama or other liberals spout a form of Islamophobia, they don't see it as such, right? So liberal Islamophobia is not seen as such. And so what you find is that, you know, Obama's attempt to bring Muslims into the security apparatus, Hillary Clinton's using of Muslims, you know, whether it was her aide, uh, Huma Abideen, or it was, you know, bringing this Pakistani American whose son died in the war on terror to be one of her spokespersons and so on. What that does is it this politics of inclusion brings Muslim faces into high places in order to neutralize the criticisms of racism, right? Because, hey, it's Muslims who are presiding over the high office, but that doesn't change the reality of torture, that doesn't change the reality of surveillance. That doesn't change the reality of drone warfare. And so Muslim inclusion into a high office within empire is not going to do away with anti-Muslim racism. And that's why it's important, I believe. And it's not just me, but a small group of other scholars and activists who have insisted that we use the term anti-Muslim racism and tie it Systematically to the structures of society that enable and benefit from this kind of racism.
0: The former British Prime Minister Tony Blair has become a case study in the development of anti Muslim racism. During the opening phase of the war on terror, Blair proudly advertised the fact that he was reading the Quran. More recently, however, Blair's worldview has curdled into something much darker. In 2015, Blair produced a report which claimed that the ideology of groups like ISIS was widely accepted in Muslim majority states.
2: The whole purpose of what we do in our foundation is to say religious extremism is a major part of this issue. And you can't really deal with it unless you deal with the issue of religion in its own terms. You know, we sometimes, it means that you accept that this perversion of Islam is the source of a lot of the problems in the Middle East. And you have to tackle it, not just by security methods, by, as we suggest, you've got to have a concerted effort to attack the religious basis of this extremism. And you've got to go to the education systems of countries in the region and elsewhere, because it's not just in the Middle East, by the way. It's in Africa. Mm -hmm. You've got millions of people displaced in Africa at the moment. Central Asia, the Far East, this is a huge problem. You've got to go to the education systems in those countries, and we've got to use our negotiating power and might with these countries to say you're gonna have to reform the education systems that are educating millions of young people day in day out to a view of the world that's narrow-minded bigoted, and hostile to those who are different
3: you've just put out this new report this morning about inside the jihadi mind you've studied this and you have recommendations for regular people on how to deal with it as well as governments. Let me read the recommendation that you give to governments. You say political leaders must not shy away from identifying ideology and warped understanding of theology as a cause of modern terrorism. The King of Jordan and British Prime Minister David Cameron have led the way. You don't mention President Obama there. Do you think that he's handling this right?
2: No, I think he actually held the conference the other day on violent extremism that, that David Cameron was speaking at. But the point that I'm making is, There's no point in just tackling the violence unless you tackle the ideology of extremism behind the violence. So one of the things we do is we say, if you survey people in majority Muslim countries, many of them at least, you will find large proportions of those populations share a lot of the basic thinking. They don't share the violence. A lot of them would criticise the violence. But, for example, three-quarters of people in many of those countries they believe that it's their job to stand up for an Islamic society against what the United States is trying to do. So you, you've got these broad ideological strands that lie behind a lot of this extremism.
0: In a speech delivered a few months earlier, Blair spelled out the logic underpinning this political turn. He could never accept that the wars waged by the US and Britain had encouraged the growth of terrorism. According to Blair, the problem must lie in the political and religious cultures of the Middle East.
2: It is almost incredible to me that so much of Western opinion appears to buy the idea that the emergence of this global terrorism is somehow our fault. For a start, it is indeed global. No one who ever bothers, half bothers, to look at the spread and range of activity related to this terrorism, can fail to see its presence in virtually every major nation in the world. It's directed at the United States and its allies, of course, but it's also directed at nations who could not conceivably be said to be allies of the West. It is also, I have to say, nonsense to suggest that it's the product of poverty. It's true, it will use the cause of poverty. But its fanatics are hardly the champions of economic development. This extremism is not wanting Muslim countries to modernize, but to retreat into governance by a semi-feudal religious oligarchy. And yet, despite all of this, which I consider virtually obvious, we look at the bloodshed in Iraq, and a large part of our opinion says that's the reason for leaving. We listen to the propaganda that tells us It's because of our suppression of Muslims and of parts of our opinion seriously believing that if only we got out of Iraq and Afghanistan and left them through the carnage, it would all stop.
0: We might have expected Blair's polemic to include some critical words about Saudi Arabia. After all, the Saudi regime has spent billions of dollars promoting a version of Islam which is profoundly hostile to the rights of women and religious minorities. In reality, Blair has been a tireless defender of the Saudi monarchy. Also in 2015, he warmly praised the late King Abdullah when speaking to CNN.
2: I think he will be remembered as someone who, who took Saudi Arabia on um, major steps of modernization. Uh, he was someone who did a gr- huge amount for interfaith relations between those people of different faiths. I remember attending a conference with him in Madrid where he was meeting... Um, rabbis and um, Christian clerics, as well as imams, and that was a very important part of his his belief system. Uh, he was the person who got a lot of young Saudis to go and travel abroad. He allowed um, women to go to university in the same way as men, and and there are now more women in higher education actually than, than men in higher education. And he will be, I think, re- remembered in the region as a as a force for stability and someone who is very determined to go down an evolutionary and not a revolutionary path of change.
3: You also know his successors personally, King Salman and also the Crown Prince, Mukri, who will be following. Talk to me about what you know about them and how this will change Saudi Arabia in the next year or two to come, or indeed will it be constancy that is what we expect?
2: I expect and hope for for continuity. Um, I think now the process of change in Saudi Arabia is well embedded. Um, you know, you've got major companies like Saudi Aramco, the, the the oil company is frankly one of the best-run companies in the world. You've got a the, the King Abdullah Science and Technology University is is really groundbreaking, and I think all of the, the things I know about the leadership is that they will they will want to continue in this path.
3: When it comes to the geopolitical threats of the region, Saudi Arabia must feel encircled from all sides. With the situation in Yemen, with the government dissolving there, Shia militias taking to the streets. And also we have the proxy wars that are being fought between Saudi Arabia and Iran in places like Syria, Lebanon, also Iraq. How is that situation going to change from here with a new leadership in Saudi Arabia?
2: I think again you'll see continuity of policy and from King Abdullah's point of view he obviously supported very much the advent of President Sisi in Egypt. Um, As I say, he really wants evolutionary change. He he spoke very firmly against politicizing religion. I think you'll see him be, the the new leadership like him, be open to Iran if they feel that Iran is no longer causing problems for the region. But, you know, when it comes to people like ISIS and the extremist groups, I think you'll, you'll see a very strong Saudi position, as indeed you have under King Abdullah.
0: Blair's foundation has received millions of dollars from the Saudi ruling class. He strongly denied that financial considerations had any impact on his worldview. What are the main ideological frames that you identify through which Islamophobic discourse presents Muslims and Muslim communities?
1: So let's first begin by defining what ideology is, right? So Ideology is a set of ideas, a taken for granted framework, if you will, which sees the status quo as natural. It sees the existing order as, um, you know, something to not be questioned. It's simply the way things are. It naturalizes um, the existing system. And so identify six ideological Uh, frames. And before I go into that, let me just read from Stuart Hall, how uh, Stuart Hall from the Cultural Studies Paradigm, here's how he defines ideology. He says, quote, ideologies work most effectively when we are not aware that how we formulate and construct a statement about the world is underpinned by ideological premises. When our formations seem to be simply descriptive statements of how things are, or what we can take for granted. Little boys like playing rough games, little girls, however, are full of sugar and spice, is predicated, that statement that is, is predicated on a whole set of ideological premises, though it seems to be an aphorism which is grounded not in how masculinity and femininity have been historically and culturally constructed in society, but in nature itself. Ideologies tend to disappear from view into the taken-for-granted naturalized world of common sense. And just like gender, race appears to be given by nature. And racism is one of the most profoundly naturalized of existing ideologies. So it's important to understand, I think, um, how ideology has been understood uh, by various scholars in the Marxist tradition and outside of it to see how certain ideas are just repeated as if they are truth statements when in fact they are socially constructed. So with that in mind, I identify some of these frames, some of these truth statements, if you will, that just parade as common sense in the media, in polite conversation and so forth. And these are the following. One, that Islam is a monolithic religion, right? There's just one Islam, never mind the diversity of Islamic practices. There's Sunni, there's Shia, there's Sufi Islam and in fact as the religion spread it incorporated the traditions of you know the regions where muslim rulers began to expand the muslim um, empire so that diversity of practice of culture and so on is completely erased in order to create a monolith and that's important because you can't say that muslims are all this or all that unless you ossify the religion itself, and then make the claim that if you practice Islam, you are, for instance, driven to violence, right? So that is a useful and necessary first step in racializing uh, Muslims uh, from a racist point of view. Um, Second frame, Islam is uniquely sexist and Muslim women need to be liberated by the West. Now, of course, this has a long history. It goes back to the high point of European colonialism in the 19th century when the white man's burden was about many things, including the supposed liberation of brown women from brown men. In reality, of course, this, you know, this has not played out in this way, but it's a useful tool to enlist domestic uh, populations to support uh, empire. Number three, Islam is anti-modern and does not separate religion and politics. Now, this is something that uh, people like Bernard Lewis, who is the author of the term Clash of Civilizations, uh, popularized. And, uh, you know, the argument goes that whereas in the West, There has been a clear separation between religion and politics. In the modern era, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment pushed back against Christian domination. The same has not happened in the quote-unquote world of Islam, right? Again, a monolith. This is actually not true. There has been a de facto separation of religion and politics going all the way back to the 9th and 10th century, where the so-called men of pen, that is the religious scholars, And the men of sword, the uh, army, the political leaders, have always operated autonomously uh, from one another. Besides, you know, people who like to peddle this myth of the separation of religion and politics um, tend to sweep over the persecution of, you know, scientists, for instance, by the Inquisition. Galileo was forced to recant. um, Otherwise, you know, he would have been killed he did recant and then he was imprisoned. Um, Giordano Bruno, unfortunately, did not recant um, and, you know, was uh, burnt at the stake. And these are people, of course, challenging the Christian view that the sun rotates around the earth as opposed to the other way around. So all these inconvenient truths are left out in the telling of this uh, story. But that brings me to myth number four, which is the relationship between uh, science and various Muslim-majority countries. And the idea is that the Muslim mind is incapable of rationality and science. And this is the basis, of course, of the idea of the irrational Muslim rage that drives people to become terrorists uh, and whatnot. And in fact, what this frame, this ideological frame erases is the fact that after Europe goes into stagnation, after the decline of Rome in the 4th century, the so-called Dark Ages, if it wasn't for the various Muslim kingdoms Al-Andalus, which is the name given to the Muslim empire in Spain and Portugal, as well as, you know, the empires that would stretch all the way up to India, all of the knowledge produced by Greece and Rome would have been lost. And they actually go through a period of not only translating these great works of science, of astronomy, of architecture, and so on, but they build upon it systematically. The Muslim scholars build upon it. And if it hadn't been for this work, um, various scholars have argued, Europe would never have come out of the Dark Ages and actually gone through the Renaissance. So that's another ideological framework that is based on a very selective and incorrect interpretation of history, which leads me then to the fifth ideological frame, which is that Islam is inherently violent. Um, This this is a long-standing frame. It goes back all the way to the Crusades, um, but has been revived in the post-911 era with a degree of uh, virulence that somehow Muslims are prone to violence. They're like Manchurian candidates uh, waiting to explode into violent uh, rage, which is, you know the ideology that helps to justify various uh, surveillance programs and entrapment programs. And finally, the West spreads democracy because Muslims are incapable of democratic self-rule. So this is your classic white man's burden the West and particularly the United States is this beacon of democracy on the global stage and that Middle Eastern countries, countries in the global South, Muslim majority countries are incapable of self-rule and therefore must be not colonized, but must be advised and supervised by the United States and hence occupations, hence uh, wars and the rest of it.
0: In her book, Deepa singles out the following interview with the academic Reza Aslan as a classic illustration of the way that Muslims are discussed in the US media. Not only does the Muslim world have something in common with ISIS, it has too much in common with ISIS. The presenters from CNN began the segment by playing a clip from Bill Maher's show and asked Reza Aslan to respond.
4: Well, I like Bill Maher. I've been on his show a bunch of times. He's a comedian, but... You know, frankly, when it comes to the topic of religion, he's not very sophisticated in the way that he thinks. I mean, the argument about the female genital mutilation being an Islamic problem is a perfect example of that. It's not an Islamic problem, it's an African problem. Well, wait, 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 because he says it's a,
3: hold on, hold on a second, because he says it's a, a Muslim country problem. He says that in Somalia.
4: Yeah, but that's, yeah, and that's actually empirically, factually incorrect. It's a central African problem. Eritrea has almost ninety percent female genital mutilation. It's a Christian country. Ethiopia has seventy-five percent female genital mutilation. It's a Christian country. Uh, Nowhere else in the Muslim-Muslim majority states is female genital mutilation an issue. But again, this is the problem is that you make these facile arguments like that women are somehow mistreated in the Muslim world. Well, that's certainly true in many Muslim majority countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia. Do you know that Muslims have elected seven women as their heads of states uh, in those Muslim majority countries? How many women? do But it is we not. But for the most part, the Reza.
2: Reza, be honest. So for the most part, it is not a, a free and open society for women in those states
4: well it's not in Iran it's not in Saudi Arabia it certainly is in Indonesia and Malaysia it certainly is in Bangladesh it certainly is in Turkey I mean again this is the problem is that you're talking about a religion of one and a half billion people and certainly it becomes very easy to just simply paint them all with a single brush by saying well in Saudi Arabia they can't drive and so therefore that's somehow representative of Islam it's representative of Saudi Arabia and but, but Iran on, I think, they, don't, I, I, they don't have
3: I mean I think the Bill Maher's point is that these aren't extremists. We often talk about extremists, and that we should crack down on extremists, and why aren't Muslims speaking out about extremists. In Saudi Arabia, when women can't vote, and they can't drive, and they need permission from their husband, that's not extremists. Why aren't we talking why? more about, what? Th- that's not extremists, that's commonplace. Why don't we talk more about the commonplace uh, wrongs no, a, that are happening ex- in some of these countries?
4: It's extremist when compared to the rights and, uh, and responsibilities of women, uh, Muslim women around the world. It's an extremist way of dealing. But it's with not it. course, extremist in that. It's not extremist in that country
2: in Saudi Arabia. It's that's common. the norm. Oh yeah, no, it's not. Saying.
4: I mean, look, Saudi Saudi Arabia is one of the most, if not the most, extremist Muslim country in the world. In the month that we've been talking about ISIS and their terrible actions in Iraq and Syria, Saudi Arabia, our closest ally, has beheaded 19 people. Nobody seems to care about that because Saudi Arabia sort of preserves our national interests. You know, this is the problem, is that these kinds of conversations that we're having aren't really being had in any kind of legitimate way. We're not talking about... Women in the Muslim world, we're using two or three examples to justify a generalization. That's actually the definition of bigotry. All right,
2: fair enough. Let's listen to Benjamin Netanyahu at the United Nations today.
5: So, when it comes to their ultimate goals, Hamas is ISIS and ISIS is Hamas. And what they share in common, all militant Islamists share in common. So, Reza, the question at the bottom of the screen that everyone is looking at does islam promote
4: violence islam doesn't promote violence or peace islam is just a religion and like every religion in the world it depends on what you bring to it if you're a violent person your islam your judaism your christianity your hinduism is going to be violent there are buddhist marauding buddhist monks in myanmar slaughtering women and children does buddhism promote violence of course not people are violent or peaceful and that depends on their politics their social world the way that they see their communities the way they see themselves.
3: So Reza, you don't think that there's anything more, there's the justice system in Muslim countries you don't think is somehow more primitive or subjugates women more than in other countries?
4: did you hear what you just said you said in muslim countries mm. i just told you that indonesia women are absolutely one hundred percent equal to men in turkey they have had more female representatives more female heads of state in turkey than we have in the united yes, states in pakistan Stop women saying are, things like pakistan, Muslim countries are still
3: being stoned. and that's a problem
4: for pakistan so You're in right. other words so you, I, just, no, I just want
3: to be clear on what your point is because i thought you and bill Maher were saying the same thing your point is that muslim countries are not to blame there is nothing particular there's no common thread in muslim countries you can't paint with a broad brush that somehow their justice system or sharia law or what they're doing in terms of stoning and and female mutilation is different than in other countries like western countries
4: Stoning and mutilation and those barbaric practices should be condemned and criticized by everyone. The actions of individuals and societies and countries like Iran, like Pakistan, like Saudi Arabia, must be condemned because they don't belong in the 21st century. But to say muslim countries as though pakistan and turkey are the same as though indonesia and saudi arabia are the same as though somehow what is happening in the most extreme forms of these repressive countries these autocratic countries is representative of what's happening in every other muslim country It's frankly, and I use this word seriously, stupid. So let's stop doing that.
2: Okay, Reza, let's uh, let's listen. I want you to listen to Benjamin Netanyahu
0: again. One of the main arguments of your book is that the history of Islamophobia is inseparable from the history of empire. What would you say are the long-term historical roots of this phenomenon going back to the late medieval and early modern period in Europe?
1: Yeah, so uh, this is... Actually, in the first edition of uh, my book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, I understood Islamophobia as emerging during the Crusades as well as the Reconquista. The Reconquista is the term given to the reconquest of Spain. As I mentioned earlier, Spain and Portugal were ruled for hundreds of years, almost 800 years, by Muslims. And, you know, starting. In the 10th century on, there is an attempt to take Spain back. So this is a period in which some of the most awful images of Muslims as enemies, as forces to be vanquished and so on, would be developed. Certainly the idea that Islam is violent, that the Prophet Muhammad is violent, is a sexual predator, and so forth. But in preparation for the second edition, I actually did a deep dive into medieval history. But suffice it to say, what I read, um, I wasn't convinced by some of the people who trace race and racism all the way back to antiquity. And in fact, you know, uh, there are others who argue very convincingly that, in fact, the notion of race did not exist back in the medieval era. Now, Europe was actually pretty much the backwaters on the global stage at this point, right? It was China, it was India, it was the Arabs, uh, it was, you know, uh, empires much more powerful than the tiny little kingdoms uh, in Europe. And if you look at the context of the Crusades and if you look at the Reconquista, Sure, there are enemy images being formed, but it's very contradictory. So, there is a genre of French epic poetry known as chanson de geste, which you have, you know, some themes that are repeated again and again, which is that, of course, you had Muslims as monsters, as three headed beasts, and all the rest of it. But then you have the uh, antagonist. The equivalent of a European or a French knight who is presented as noble and brave and courageous and so on. And the only problem is that he's a Muslim. And so you have these scenes in which he's about to be killed, about to be vanquished, but then he decides to convert to Islam and uh, to Christianity. And lo and behold, he's accepted into the fold, right? And if you look a little deeper into what's going on in these kinds of, you know, uh, ideological products, the attitude is really a reflection of Christian universalism, which is that there aren't permanent others, which is one of the hallmarks of modern racism, but instead an attitude of assimilation, right? People are others only to the extent that they are not Christian, but once they convert, they can be accepted uh, into the fold. Now, things actually change in the early modern era, uh, particularly in Spain and Portugal, with the emergence of these two uh, forces as powerful mercantile empires, right? So this is the period from 1500 to 1800. And I argue that a form of racism that I call proto-racism begins in early modern Spain. So what you see is the proliferation of blood purity laws, what's known as limpieza de sangre. And they were the first attempts to racialize people biologically. That is, if you converted, right, this was the context where there were forced conversions and many Jews as well as Muslims converted to Christianity. But even if you converted, your blood was still seen as impure. So this is one of the first connections between biology and race. And the question is, why did this happen? Now, interestingly, this was not pushed by Ferdinand and uh, Isabella, the power duo that kicked out the Muslims finally in 1492 and established the Spanish Empire. It was the forces behind this were the old Christians, right? People who were Christians Uh, Before the so-called new Christians, these were the converts to Christianity, because they wanted high office in government. There was competition over jobs. There was competition over who gets to go to the new world and, you know, claim all the booty, the conquistadors and so forth. And they wanted to get their competition, which is converted Jews primarily out of the way. Right. And in fact, Ferdinand himself had Jewish relatives and they were not terribly happy about this. But this push of empire and expansion to the new world and so on begins a process by which these blood purity laws uh, would spread throughout imperial Spain. Now, as we know, 1492 is also the mass expulsion of Jews from Spain. Uh, Jews occupied high positions. They were part of the professional classes and they were removed from these positions. Now, Muslims would not immediately face the same fate uh, because they were not in these high positions. Many of the upper class Muslims had already left. They saw the writing on the wall. Those that remained were agricultural workers and peasants whose produce was needed. And so for a while, they were shielded from the same kind of persecution. But as they start to fight back against the Inquisition, against the new atmosphere of intolerance, that's when they start to be seen as a fifth column, as agents of the Ottoman Empire, of North African kingdoms and so on. And then they too become racialized uh, enemies. But the important point is that this is not full-blown racism because there isn't a uniform sense of inferiority associated either with Jews or uh, with Muslims. It would actually take the enlightenment and the division of human beings into various groups within these new classificatory schemas um, that would produce this notion of uniform inferiority. And you think about it, you know, it's hard to think of Muslims as inferior When you have the grand Ottoman Empire or the Mughals in India or what have you, who are much more advanced in terms of, you know, culture, economics, politics than Europeans were um, at the time. And one cultural example that I'll give is at the height of Muslim expulsion in the early 17th century, Don Quixote, Cervantes's book, Don Quixote, is written during that period. And it's interesting to see how Muslim converts, they were known as Moriscos, are actually covered uh, during this, uh, in this novel. There's one character in particular, she's a woman, she's expelled from Spain, and she passes as a man, as a captain on a ship, and she's caught, and she's brought you know, to trial and so forth. And she makes such a fantastic speech about her circumstances and, you know, why she loves Spain and how she was thrown out, how she was deprived of um, access to family uh, wealth and so on. And everyone is moved to tears, so much so that the person presiding over her trial invites her and her father to his house and the whole village comes to meet them, um, and so forth. Which, if you think about the high point of expulsion, and then this attitude towards Moriscos, like you know, Moriscos are one of us after all. It's it's very contradictory. It's it's not as you know full fledged as colonialism and the racist attitudes that you would find later on uh, in the 19th century.
0: In his recent election campaign, the French far-right politician Eric Zemmour harked back to the glory days of the Inquisition. Zemmour called his party Reconquête, a reference to the Spanish Reconquista. Channel 4 News gave us a flavour of his message in the following report.
5: When it comes to the election for French president a few months from now, Eric Zemmour has lit the fuse. Polemics, pundit, makes the Le Pens look soft. His best-selling book is called The French Suicide. And as harbingers of cultural doom go, some people really are delighted to see that. For the people crammed into the hall in Nîmes, southern France, he's more cultural guru than politician. The message, a version of great replacement theory that the French way of life is under siege from its growing Muslim population. C'est une guerre qui ne dit pas
2: son nom qui nous émeut chaque jour. C'est même plus qu'une guerre civile, c'est une guerre de religion qui nous menace.
5: The crowd appear well to do, middle class, the end is nigh, some are wearing loafers for the occasion.
0: The rhetoric of Zemmour and his supporters is characteristically muddled and ahistorical. On the one hand, they glorify the religious wars of a Catholic absolute monarchy. On the other hand, they invoke the heritage of the French Revolution.
5: In the queue outside, national identity anxiety, a sense that a migrant population doesn't understand French values.
3: Uh, French for French.
5: The French for the French. It it is just a particular type of French person. It's being French and not being white or Christian. It's being uh, liberty, fraternity, equality, you know.
0: You argue in the book that anti-Muslim racism, as you understand it, developed... In the post-Enlightenment period, could you expand on that point?
1: Right. So uh, there are, of course, as I said earlier, negative images, the ideology uh, that goes back to the Crusades and the Reconquista. There's also proto-racism that begins in the early modern era. And the early modern era is marked by what are traces of the medieval period, as well as anticipatory in terms of what is to come in terms of the the Enlightenment. So you don't have scientific racism um, in early modern Spain. You have religiously inflected proto-racism. Now, what would happen after the Enlightenment uh, and during the Enlightenment is that these attitudes would be elevated onto the stage of science, right? So you have people like... uh, the Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus, who would start slotting people into different subspecies within the broader genus of human. So he created a, a schema differentiating between Europeans, Africans, Asians, and American Indians. And then the German scholar Johann Friedrich Blumenbach would actually produce a more scientific means of classification historian Nell Painter argues how Blumenbach is not only significant for actually using the term Caucasian to identify white people, but for also advancing the notion that human difference is based on skin color as well as other bodily measurements such as skull size um, and shape. And his book, On the Natural Varieties of Humankind, He identified five categories of human beings, Caucasians, Ethiopians, Americans, Malays, and uh, Mongolian. And so these sorts of differentiations of human beings that were developed by these thinkers in the enlightenment would then become very useful during the high point of European colonization in the 19th century. Now, I'll say one last thing about, you know, the thinking that was uh, established in the, uh, during the Enlightenment. It's not all what we would consider racist, right? Some of the uh, work, of course, sets the stage for modern scientific notions of racism. But there's also, during the Enlightenment, scholarship on Islam that is quite uh, sympathetic, So there are various tracts that are published that, um, you know, uh, goes against the medieval argument that the prophet Muhammad is an imposter. Voltaire, for instance, uh, the French Enlightenment thinker Voltaire, defends Muhammad as a great thinker and a founder of a rational religion and so on. So it's very contradictory during this period. But what happens is that in the 19th century and going forward, the new empires, that is, if in the mercantile imperial stage, it was Spain mainly, but also Portugal that dominated, during the period of capitalist imperialism, the 19th century on, it's Britain and to a lesser extent, uh, France that would actually be the dominant uh, forces. And they would play a huge role, of course, in the conquest of the Middle East, the African continent, South Asia, um, and so forth. And this is when you see the birth of Orientalism. Orientalism is both an ideology as well as a set of practices that we use to justify as well as administer empire. Again, a quick caveat, I make a distinction between official administrative Orientalism which is the policy that was used and the ideology that was used, versus Orientalism as it expresses itself in art and culture and so on, in that realm, it's very contradictory. So the Romantic movement would actually praise and venerate people in the global south because it was a movement against industrialization and the ways in which that had bankrupted Western societies and so forth. So there's a lot of contradiction. But suffice it to say, in the official realm, you start to see the development and the extension of enlightenment notions of classifying human beings according to various sort of subspecies, if you will. So the idea of homo islamicus, right, Um, which is Muslims as a particular kind of subspecies um, of the human uh, race, begins to get a hearing and begins to become part of what Orientalism is about. And it's really, again, about justifying colonialism, the white man's burden. We are off to go off and civilize and uplift these people and bring them up to where we are, right? Britain and France, of course, have gone through their uh, revolutions, their bourgeois revolutions. And now they claim that that is what they wanna do in other parts of the world. And so I'll give one example, which is um, Napoleon's conquest of Egypt in 1798. It's one of the first examples of enlightened colonialism. And Napoleon shows up in Egypt thoroughly prepared to dominate the Egyptian people. He's read the Quran, He's read everything that has been written about Egypt with the idea that he wants to win the hearts and minds of the Egyptian people and secure an understanding from them that Napoleon and that France, which has just gone through its revolution, is there to bring the Egyptian people up, to push back against the Ottomans and to allow Egypt to go back to its earlier glory and so forth. So it's a different modality, if you will, of colonialism. Enlightened colonialism. And uh, there are a couple of paintings that I want to refer to. So there's one called Napoleon at a Plague House in Jaffa. And the story behind it, you know, one one can see this as one of the first uh, instances of public relations. Public relations as a field is informed by this point. But there's a rumor that Napoleon has poisoned his own French troops because they contacted the plague. And so to diffuse that, he commissions a painting. Of course, a painting takes a lot longer than a video news release that, you know, we can do much more easily these days. But this painting is very interesting because it has Napoleon in the middle, touching some of these French uh, soldiers with Egyptians uh, or, you know, Arabs in the background on their knees, looking up to him, like as if he's God. Right. So it's the healing touch of kings, the healing touch uh, of God, which is, you know, the mission, uh, mission civilisatrice, which is the language, the civilizing mission that uh, France would develop. And in terms of actually how uh, people in the Middle East were depicted, another painting called Death of Sardinopoulos is, you know, is quite illustrative. And what you see is Sardinopoulos, this, you know, cruel ruler who is reclining on a bed while all around him there is horror. Women, naked women are being killed. There's a woman who looks dead, who's lying on his bed. Animals are being slaughtered. And it's one of those instances of, you know, rescuing brown women from brown uh, men. Although the women in most of these Oriental paintings are very fair-skinned, and the models for them clearly were uh, French women who posed for the uh, paintings. But suffice it to say, the idea of extreme violence, of misogyny, and so on, gets constructed as part of this Orientalist oeuvre in paintings like that of Sardanapalus*.
0: Many thanks to Deepak Kumar for giving us that summary of the arguments that she makes in her book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. We'll be broadcasting the second part of her interview on Jacobin Radio in a fortnight's time.